0: And Welcome everybody, this is The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, Positively Different Radio, in the morning you're with the Double L team, Lyle
1: Lawson. Lawson, what are you thankful for this morning? Uh, I'm thankful for a couple things. Um, oh, just life. He's got a, is good. He's got a list. Life a is list. good, firstly, I gave someone a guitar lesson yesterday and... Got paid to do it, so... <laughs> oh, there you go! <laughs> stoked on that. That's pretty cool. It's <laughs> really, really fun. Um, and, You know, it's just like a new, members... G-
0: new guitar teacher right here. Yeah. Oh, awesome hit Walters. me
1: up. I will hook... You... Dude, I will hook you guys up. I have got a full-on curriculum. Not really. I just kind of wrote some stuff down before I went in there. I was like, yeah, I should teach this person this. And it went really, really well. Uh, what cool. else? Of course, the end digital last night. Uh, yes. I'm sure that's what probably... were you're grateful for a life but i gotta say like from my perspective we kind of at the last minute got a little bit of a watch party a covid legal watch party there was nine people in the house four of them lived there five of them were away so like we're not from the house that's covid legal legal watch party watch the end dot digital had a really good time doing so asking questions engaging i'm really going for the top fan like on the uni.tv uh, yes, yes. page, I, I'm going to ask uh, a question every night. I'm going to like all the comments because I want to get that top fan. Um, and dude, right. yeah, it was fantastic. Let's see if, let's see if any of you as listeners can, can take Lawson off of his position as being number one fan. <laughs> well, it's not number one. It's that you, if you, I know that. It's but in it's the top just... couple percent. Yes. You get a badge. That's and right. so that's the thing. You guys you can fight me. If you, if you guys engage more than me, then that'll keep me away from that's it. That's right.
0: That's right.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> get on there and get on there and spread the word. That's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. I'm
0: super thankful that all of our tech work last night. So much co- more complex doing live TV than what it is doing live radio, and I never yeah, realised wow. until the last couple of days getting it all sorted out. Let's talk about the weather.
1: You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. I love, you know, saying it's time, you know, the time has come, this is it. It's happening. Things like that. It's happening, like, uh, about new technology. And this technology that I found, I'm honestly surprised that it didn't exist until now. I'm actually kind of baffled. I'm like, isn't this like just the most obvious thing ever? We have robots that make cars and robots that do all kinds of things. Uh, Robots that, as I shared, I think it was at the start of this week or last week, sit in your shoe and tell you where to go if you're blind. But check this out. For the first time, they're rolling out a robot that performs CPR. Okay.
0: Right, so so, so you just put this beside the pool. You just keep it beside the pool. You see, so beside the pool, you have your life ring and you have your CPR robot, and you have yeah. your CPR instructions.
1: Well, at the moment, because these robots cost like about seventeen thousand US dollars, they're not going to sit beside everybody's. Backyard not going to sit beside everyone's pool, but they are seventeen so
0: grand's not that bad, actually.
1: Yeah, for something like this, for something like, dude, this is what I'm thinking. I'm like, this is re- for for medical equipment. Is mm-hmm. a relatively mm-hmm. inexpensive.
0: Yes. And the thing with CPR is there's a bit of a knack to it apparently. I've never done it. I've done, you know, I've done my course in it yeah, and done it on dummies, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. But if I was ever to do it for real, I'd be like, am I doing this right?
1: Yeah, 100%. You know, am I
0: am I doing the compress the, the chest
1: compressions hard enough? Am I am I breathing, you know, what, what am, am I am... breaking their sternum? All that, kind that of happens stuff. pretty often when you do CPR. Uh-huh, uh-huh. If you do it correctly. Well, this is the thing is that there's a robot that they've released and they are currently trialing in the uh in the english ambulance you know systems In they call it uh the south central ambulance service so SCAS. they're currently trialing them uh and uh yeah they're rolling them out at the moment so it's a great place where you can take out the human factor
0: and for me i'd be able to sit back and relax let the robot do its thing and say like well yeah you know, the, there's no human
1: factor here i just this is probably as good as this person's going to get because that's one of the contributing factors of people kind of passing away during the cpr period is that the human doing cpr gets tired yes like a particular Or doesn't do a great job because you can, or, or doesn't do a great job yeah i mean 100%. cpr is
0: fantastic it's amazing how many people have been brought back mm. to life through cpr and like you know 10% i think of uh, of, of of people you know would have you know, have, have been resuscitated who mm. would have died otherwise.
1: Yeah, so basically it, like, you know, say the ambulance gets a call, oh, my friend's, I like, passed out or they're drowning or whatever, and you start doing your own manual CPR. The ambulance comes, it's on the way, Um, and they come and, you know, come to the person who is receiving CPR. They've got this robot, they sit it over its chest, has, like, a... You know, basically some kind of, like, hydraulic system that, you know, forces an arm up and down into their chest to do the chest compressions. Um, It runs off Bluetooth connectivity to, like, a phone or a device that the the ambulance person has who can um, kind of decide and stipulate, you know, how much force is needed, how much... um, how much travel is needed as well because, you know, if you do a CPR on different people, depending on their size, they need different force. And, like, if you did CPR on a baby, you're only supposed to use, like, two fingers versus, like, you know, if you did super CPR on, like, a full-grown man, you use, you know, both palms kind of thing. Um, and, yeah, basically, like, they can just chuck that stuff in and within, like, less than a minute, you know, the person can be doing their compressions. You can chuck the seat. You can look at, like, the... The ambulance driver, the paramedic, can like look at the person on the ground, chuck in the information there, literally giving the person compressions. The person giving compressions takes a step back. They put the machine on, press go, and it starts doing it.
0: See, what they need is to be able to send this out via a drone. So you oh, call triple you, you call zero, and they're like, yep, we're on the way with the ambulance. The drone will be there in like three minutes, and we'll be there in half an hour.
1: I think like the ultimate ultimate would be like some kind of Iron Man-like robot. That is act-
0: oh, okay, a drone that is, a, a drone that is a CPR robot. Yeah. So the drone just lands over the top of the person and goes. Yeah. That, now, there, that's, now you're talking. That's now you're the
1: talking. technology right yeah. there. but Drone's pretty cool. Where, where my son lives, they
0: do um, all of their, well, not all of their, but so, several of the, of the fast food joints do their deliveries by drone.
1: Yeah, in Brisbane. Uh-huh. It's just I, you hear these drones crazy? like zooming zoom, zoom, over console. the top of your head, and it's like, why don't we have that in Newcastle? I feel like we have a small enough. I'd pay a, extra popul- for that. Yeah, we have a small enough population to where it could be effective. Yes, like,
0: I'd, I'd pay extra just to have a drone land in my backyard. Hundred percent. No, that's cool. <laughs> well, you know, in a hundred years' time, people are going to think we're weird if time is which it won't. But if time was to last that long, because you know, <laughs> hundred years ago, people would pay money to go and see an aeroplane fly.
1: Yeah, wow. <laughs> like Oh man, they go to see drones fly. I live in I live in a drone. <laughs> like something like that. Uh anyway, ooh, oh quick quick bit of news coming out of Australia actually. One of the most venomous caterpillars uh in the world they're find, found to uh which is the Australian, one of the Australian no cater- caterpillars, honestly. Like, of course it's going to be in Australia. You actually, you actually find this in southeast Queensland around the yes. Brisbane area. Mm-hmm. They just hang out and they're terrible. They have a scientific name of Duratifera vulnerans, which yes. in Latin literally means like blesses you with wounds.
0: Right. That's that's the name of it. Yes, I'm not um, so sure this- what the blessing is, but anyway. <laughs> yeah,
1: but essentially, um, Dr. Andrew... So your will- positively different news is this thing has been wiped out, right? No, no. <laughs> okay. No, it's actually that uh, this thing, they're found to have certain um, proteins and whatnot in it that they have been able to turn into bacteria-killing proteins. Oh. Yeah. Cool. Which is really cool. Okay, let's not wipe the caterpillar out. Let's breed the things. So this is this is the step. Basically, they've realised like, oh, th- we've got this terribly poisonous caterpillar that has poisonous barbs and is camouflaged and is literally like a silent killing machine without doing anything. It's just designed to ward everything off it. Um, and but actually, we can harvest the venom from it. You know, take certain proteins out. They've like um. Synthesized and sequenced everything, and they've seen the molecular, you know, makeup. Like, oh, we can actually do something with this, which is great. Um, what this has shown me ultimately is though, as Australians, we get flack for having terrible animals, at least those terrible animals do something. They do good things at the end of the day. Yes, you know, this one does. This one does. I'm not sure about brown snakes, but this one does. I'm sure brown snakes have a purpose. They must do. They I must think do. that's what they need to move on to now, is finding out <laughs> yeah. what the good in brown How snakes can are. Yes, that's <laughs>
0: right. Find out something positive about brown snakes.
1: <laughs> dude, that's awesome. They're not positive when they're in my backyard. <laughs> oh, dude. Well, I wouldn't want like to find one of these caterpillars either, but apparently I need to collect them and get paid. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different.
0: All right, so couple of uh, interesting stories, and this one's coming out of Washington, D.C., where they have just legalised religious bullying. Oh, yeah, okay. How, how so? So this is one that I guess, you know, a lot of people have been watching the COVID crisis have been waiting for when this would happen, and uh, now it has. So Washington, D.C., they just passed a new law under which you can vaccinate children at school without consent from the parents and without having any legal obligation to inform the parents. In fact, they will create two different medical records for your child on one medical record, which the parents get to see. The vaccination uh, will remain blank, and then there will be a second uh, medical record where the child will be vaccinated. That is
1: probably the most terrible thing you've ever told me. That's a pretty not, full-on I, I, law. Okay, That's a not, pretty full-on law. Not even from the perspective of like being pro or anti-vax, but... How can you omit information from a medical record? Well, you're not omitting it from a
0: medical record. The doctors get to see both records. The parents
1: only get to see one. But this this is only necessitated by the fact that you want to leave out parents. Like you're making more work for yourself. You're not giving the ability for parents to be able to look after their children. Okay, to it gets worse. Oh,
0: it gets worse. You want to hear this get worse? Uh huh. Okay, so this is available for children over the age of eleven so eleven to eighteen, mm-hmm. but only by consent of the child. So what that does is it opens up the door to bullying. Think about the think about the power differentiation that you have as a school teacher or as a school headmaster. Compared to an eleven year old child and think of the emotional pressure that you could put on that child to have a vaccination. Yeah. You know, and you can now legally do that. It's been challenged in court. I will be surprised if this law survives, to be honest. Um but it's there. What is the per like who now, thinks that's a and, good idea? And what idea. what's more is that insurance companies, health insurance companies, have been banned from detailing the medical service received by the child because their parents would be able to see it. So this is this is really subversive stuff. This is really going behind a behind the the parents back. <coughs> um, yeah, anyway. Um, that's what's happening in Washington DC and uh, we kind of we kind of thought, you know, and this is the thing, this is the thing. I'm just going to say this. I'm not anti-vax. Yeah. Yeah, when I travel overseas, when you and I went to uh Ethiopia, we ended up looking like pink cushions. Um because there was a whole bunch well I did anyway, I don't know whether you did, but there was a whole bunch of diseases over there like yep, nope, 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 nope. Don't want those. And uh, yeah, <laughs> oh,
1: I got a couple. Yeah, 100%. Yep. I was like, I don't want yellow fever. So I'm, I'm <laughs> not anti-vax.
0: What I am in favor of is people having the freedom to choose.
1: Yeah. But even just the freedom to know. Like for the parents, Absolutely. That's that's where I'm like, uh, I'm like, okay, look, if you want to make this vaccine mandatory, like, what are the ones in Australia that are like, like, in Australia, you kind of have a choice, but then at the same time, yeah, you have it's a like, choice. but then it's like, okay, like, every child should get, like, what is it, like, smallpox and, like, da-da-da. Yeah,
0: and the medical profession is going to put the, put the pressure on you when your child is born or when your child is of certain ages to get certain vaccinations. And that's fine because, as an adult, you can handle that pressure. You know, there's yeah. not a big power differentiation between two adults having a discussion over vaccines. Mm. There's a massive power differentiation between an adult and a child, which is why we have... The the whole thing that a child is not able to give consent because of the you know, a child under the age of eighteen, it's impossible for a child to give consent because of the power differentiation between Mm. a an adult and a child. Mm. And so now we've just legalized, yeah, you can bully a child into getting vax and the parents will never find out about it. Heavy stuff.
1: That's terrible. Well, of course, like the kid has the opportunity then to tell their parents that I guess there's not a law against that. Oh, absolutely.
0: That. There's no law against the, the child telling their parents.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's.
0: Next story. Moving on. This one's cool. Um, this is coming from archaeologists from Macquarie University in Sydney. Yep. Working in Israel. Uh huh. I have discovered something. Ooh, yes. Okay. Now, have, the, have a think about this <clears throat> out of all of the biblical archaeological sites in the world, about 1% of them have been excavated. Mhm. When those sites are excavated, typically they only excavate about 1% of the site, you know, yes. the bigger trench or two. So only a small portion of the site is is excavated. <clears throat> when they when they do that excavation, only about 1% of available material survives from the ancient past until now. So anything that's made out of anything perishable, like wood or cloth or paper or papyrus or anything like that, you know, is typically long gone. Mm. And we're only collecting things that are made out of stone and sometimes things that are made out of non perishable metals. Mm. And then on top of that, about 1% of all the things that are found get published. Yeah, wow. So there's an incredibly small amount of the available material that has just simply never been discovered, you know. What we get to read about is one percent of one percent of one percent of one percent. Yeah, wow. And amongst all of that, we have discovered over and this is the this is just astounding, over one hundred names of or we've identified one hundred people from the Bible. Mm. That's a staggeringly high amount. Okay, so uh, archaeologists from uh, Macquarie University in Sydney recently found a piece of broken pottery beside a storage pit with the owner's name written on it. Yeah. Now what makes this even more interesting is that this is from 1100 BC. Archaeologists used to believe that the Hebrew language didn't even exist back then. Mm. But recently they've found some you know material from that era and discovered that, yes, it did exist back then. And this dates all the way back to the time of the judges. Yes. Okay. So that's a long way back. They've got like you know a dozen pieces that have any kind of inscription on them from that particular period. So that makes it in uh, uh, incredibly old for that part of the world. And of course, the other thing was that during this era, literacy was incredibly rare. Mm. even when you move forward hundreds of years from the judges into the time of the kings, the kings weren't literate. Yeah, They would hire scribes. And so you've got very, very little writing that's actually being used. So to find a piece of writing from this era is incredibly rare. And if you're going to find a piece of writing, it's going to be related to somebody of, you know... Status. Status. Mm. Very, very, very high status. Uh, so they found this piece of pottery,
1: um, and guess whose name is on it? Okay, from the judges. I, please be Samson.
0: Uh, it's not Samson. Oh, Sorry. come on, come on. It is it's not Samson. Is it Deborah? It's not Deborah. Uh,
1: okay. Those are, those are cool guesses, though. It, is it Gideon? It is Gideon.
0: Yes, dude. It oh, is Gideon. Oh, let's go. They found, it. They found his pottery. Um, and by the way, this name is a name that proclaims the owner of the piece of pottery. Mm-hmm. And the name on there is actually Jeroboam. Yes. Because Gideon, his other name was, his nickname was Jeroboam. Yeah. Because he was the one who took down the altar of Baal. And when everybody got upset, he's like, well, let Baal defend himself. Mm. If Baal wants to come after me, Baal can come after me. Let him come. <laughs> well, his dad actually said that. And uh, that was how he survived. But, and so he got the name Jeroboam, which means Baal, defend yourself. Mm. It's effectively what it means. And, uh, of course, he's very famous for the Battle of Mora Hill where he defeated the Midianites Mm. uh, in a very, very um, asymmetric battle. Yes. You know, 300 men against 120,000 Midianites and they were able to win a tremendous victory there. They found this piece of pottery. Of course, the question is how many Jerobales existed? My question is, how many Jerobales of status, enough status to have actually their name written down, existed during that period? Mm. I think that gives a very, very high probability that we have found a piece of
1: a pottery jug that Gideon owned and he wrote his name on it. And particularly because it's a nickname, it's not someone's birth name, it's not David, yes. uh, like it's not, it's not Michael, it's Jerobale, which is a nickname ascribed to a person of status. Fascinating stuff. Wow. Let's see where this That's one amazing. goes. You're listening to The Breakfast Joe podcast on Faith FM, positively different.
0: All right, joining us on the phone this morning is Renee Livingston. Of course, Renee Livingston is uh, a herbalist and an expert on natural therapies. Uh, Renee, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, hi, Lars. Thanks for having me on again.
0: It's great to have you back again. And of course, we're in the middle of winter right now, and winter is typically that time of year when, you know, the flu and cold and all that kind of stuff goes wandering around our communities. Are we seeing as much of it this year as what we normally do?
2: Look, I think we're probably seeing a little bit less just because of a fair bit of um, self-isolating and things like that going on. So we're perhaps not mixing and mingling quite as much as we have in previous years, but you know, always there's going to be colds and flus flying around and I know our household has certainly had a few already this winter. So, and that's a common thing. Like it's actually, we often fear the cold or flu and think, oh, it's better if we never get one. But it's actually quite a good thing for your immune system to be educated with the colds and flus that are going around. Um, so to get, you know, one or two colds or flus per year is actually quite healthy. It's like keeping yourself informed with the world news, just a know what's happening around the country and keeping your immune system uh, functioning optimally is really what getting a cold or flu is all about.
0: Okay, so this this is a question that uh, sort of pops up in my mind because I normally, in a normal year, I'm the kind of person who will sort of, yeah, I, I typically expect to uh, to catch a cold or flu at the beginning of the winter season, another one towards the end. Mm-hmm. I usually get it twice in the year. And you know yeah. I'm miserable for a few days, and maybe have a week <laughs> off work or something or other, and 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 yeah. totally totally go down with the man flu. I'm the worst man flu person on the planet. <laughs> but um,
2: you're in good company, Lyle.
0: You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so ever since COVID started, I haven't mm-hmm. had any cold or any flu, which may, makes me a little bit scared when we eventually come out of lockdown and we just sort of forget COVID exists. Are we just going to get smashed with every cold and flu that has existed for the last couple of years that we haven't caught?
2: <laughs> it's likely. Like, your body does form a memory of the different um, cold viruses that you've had. So there's over 200 different kinds of viruses that can cause your common cold symptoms. Your rhinoviruses are the most common. Um, but every time you have a flu, i sorry, a cold, your body will remember that particular virus and it'll be like, well-equipped and armed to fight it next time you get it. So if you go for quite a long period of time without a cold, you know, when you're exposed, your body's likely to, you know, become symptomatic and allow that particular cold to replicate just so that it can um, get its database up to date with what you've had and, you know, what it's fought before. Um, so, yeah, the more colds you get under your belt, the less you'll actually be getting as you get older because the more of the 200 you can fight when you're, Younger and your immune system's more active, the better you'll be. <laughs> that sounds a bit funny, but that's that's really how our body works. So yep. that's why kids get yep. a lot more colds than adults because their immune systems, you know, active. They're young, they're healthy, so their body's ready to take on board all those colds and fight them off and form good memory against them.
0: So it gives us a little bit of protection for old age.
2: That's right. That's
0: right. Okay, so. Um, cold and flus, one of those things that we're not going to avoid in our world. Uh, a fact of life. They do tend to come around during the winter more so. Is that caused by the cold weather or the close proximity?
2: Probably a bit of both. Um, obviously, with COVID happening, we've got a bit less close proximity, and within your household. Um, but yeah, definitely close proximity to people, just being indoors a lot. There's a lot to do with, you know, lack of sunlight exposure and all these kinds of things as well. So there's many different factors. A big one that um, I love to kind of make sure I push and make sure people know about is lack of hydration. So essentially your nasal passages, they are a moist mucous membrane. They should be like a functioning water slide park. Like when the water slide is on, the water's running through it, it's very slippery and you just slide down that thing, no problem. Uh, it's hard to kind of hold yourself against the slide. You can do it, but it's, you're working against the force. And that's kind of how cold viruses are in our nasal passages when we're well hydrated. If we're dehydrated, not drinking enough water, you've got 40% less, um, birth signaling when in cold weather. Um, so yeah, you're less likely to be drinking. Those mucous membranes are less likely to be hydrated. And therefore, it's really like a, rough, easy to cling to terrain. So when the water slide is turned off, you can easily climb up that slide, no problems. And that's essentially what happens with our nasal passages in winter when we're dehydrated. So you're leaving yourself a lot more open and susceptible to um, catching the cold and actually having it fit in your nasal passages and replicate um, as opposed to when you're really well hydrated. Like in summer, when we're sweating more, we're feeling more thirsty, we drink more. Those mucous membranes are much more um, moist and supple and your body can like, push away those cold viruses a lot more quickly.
0: So here in uh, New South Wales where, where we're broadcasting from and, and, and where you're living mm-hmm. as well, we tend to have moist, cold or cool, moist, cool winters, I would describe it as. But Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering how much difference that would make if you lived in somewhere like, for instance, where my wife comes from in Wisconsin, where they have uh, winters where the temperature can drop to 30 below and stay there for weeks on end. And, of course, Mm -hmm. there is zero moisture in the air. There is 0% humidity because any form of moisture is immediately frozen solid. Does that actually contribute to your nasal passages drying out easier? And does somebody in that kind of a climate need to drink even more?
2: Yeah, without a doubt. You'll definitely be having much drier nasal passages when the air is just so dry and there's no humidity in it. Um, Definitely you need to be drinking water, but the other one there is actually to make sure your circulation is adequate too. So you don't want to just flood your system with too much water. Um, But you definitely want to, you know, be still trying to get your two litres a day. And often when you've got heaters on or even a fire and things like that, that's going to dry the air out even further, Um, air conditioning, these kinds of things. So you definitely want to drink two litres, two and a half if you can in winter Um, because, yeah, just because of that dry factor. But keeping your circulation um, even is fairly important too. Like our extremities tend to get really cold when they're, air temperature is very cool, so you'll notice if your toes or your fingers or your nose is really cold, you've got less circulation to those extremities, therefore you're not getting the delivery of your white blood cells to those areas, and you've essentially got like a border patrol white blood cell in your nasal pathogens. Um and this is called your CD8 T memory cell, so it's essentially a, they call it your killer cell or your cytotoxic killer cell, and it sits within your nasal passages and You know, it's like like the bouncer in your nose that essentially tells the viruses, hang on a sec, you know, we're determined to come in here. And if it, it deems that that virus shouldn't be coming into your nostrils, then it actually has the ability to kill that virus then and there or to signal other cells to come and help fight it. So if you've got poor circulation to your nose and your nose is feeling really cold, then you know that you're going to be more susceptible to actually having a cold virus come in. To your nasal passages and replicate. So, yeah, keeping warm, keeping well closed um, keeping well hydrated. That's really important strategies over winter to help fight off the cold.
0: Should we be avoiding during winter? Should we be avoiding the outdoors where we're going to where our nose is going to get cold?
2: <laughs> Definitely not. Outdoors is super super important and like one of your big um, nutrients for your immune system is vitamin D. And our vitamin D, we get some from food sources, many animal food sources though. So for those that are vegetarian or vegan, you're really relying a fair bit on the sunlight exposure. And when your body's, you know, when it's cold and you're wearing jumpers and track pants and things like that, you've got very little of your skin actually exposed to the sunlight. So the areas that are exposed, we want to make sure we're, you know, don't have a sunscreen in our moisturizer or something like that to inhibit Um, the rays that we need to actually help with that vitamin D production because vitamin D is critical for immune, um, yeah, immune function and over winter we're just not getting outdoors as much as we would in summer. So you kind of have to consciously think about it. Get out there, do your walk outside, exercise outdoors, do some gardening. Um, yeah, perhaps on a warmer day, get a t-shirt on for a period of time not to a point where you're you know, you get freezing, but if it's warm enough, allowing your skin to have a little bit more exposure to the sun. It got just boggles my mind how many Australians are actually low in vitamin D and particularly after winter when you check levels. It's surprisingly low for a country that gets a lot of sunlight. You'd expect that Aussies would have a bit more vitamin D than they do, but yeah, I think You know, we get a bit shocked too. (laughs) As soon as it's a little bit cool, we're like, oh, freezing inside, heater on, um, you know, all rugs up. But we've got to just remember to stay outdoors and stay active over winter just as much as in summer.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I guess the thing that surprises me too is that when you get a freezing cold day like we had yesterday here in the Newcastle region, how many? (laughs) I just see the odd person walking around in shorts and a T-shirt and I'm thinking... Don't you realise that it's winter right now? But I guess they've probably just uh, moved up from Tasmania a week or two ago. but uh, yeah, and, look, enjoy- and enjoying the warm likely. weather. Or, or Canberra. Or Canberra. Um, it's all a matter of perspective. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Now, um, foods. What kind of foods can mm-hmm. we eat that will help boost our immune system uh, during the winter period, during the, the cold flu season? Yeah, sure. So
2: there's that are going to be beneficial and then there's also going to be some that are really going to be working against us so I wanted to address that first because we can be eating like all the greatest of foods to help us combat a cold and then we might be eating a few things that are really paralyzing everything and going to leave us at great risk so like sugar is a big one here we want to actually be avoiding sugar and it's not just you know you will refined sugar so to speak but even just having a lot of carbohydrate rich foods like if you're eating bagels and you know donuts muffins spaghetti things like that are just really refined white carbohydrates they're essentially going to be adding to that sugar load so um, there was a study that was conducted at Loma Linda University and they found that people that consumed a range of different forms of sugar so they had some people you know having slices of bread some people actually having you know, refined sugar by the teaspoon. And they were actually checking the effectiveness of their white blood cells, um, you know, during and after the consumption of these foods. And they found that um, the effectiveness of their white blood cells was actually reduced by 50% one to two hours after eating these sugary foods. Um, and it, some effects of the uh, lack of functioning of their white blood cells or the lack of effectiveness Lasted even up to five hours post consumption. So, like, we've got to remember that four grams of carbohydrate, um, especially refined carbohydrates, are equal to about a teaspoon of sugar. So, you just want to be watching, you know, how many slices of white bread we're consuming in winter and, you know, how much pasta or croissants and things like that that we're consuming because they, and a lot of foods have hidden sugars in them as well. So, thinking of your tomato sauces and different condiments that you add to things that are actually very high in sugar. So if we can keep our sugar consumption down, then we really want to be consuming lots of colorful fruits and veggies. We want to get things in that are really high in antioxidant content, things that are going to help our cells um, function optimally and also help clean up any damage or um, toxins that are being created from various viruses or bacteria and things like that. So foods that are high in vitamin C are particularly good. So, you know, your broccoli, your citrus, Fruits, your capsicums, various berries, and my all time favourite, garlic and onions. Um, so, they're just sulfur containing uh, veggies. They're a really good prebiotic for the gut, so they can be helping with your gut microflora. Um, but they also have a specific therapeutic compound called Allicin uh, that actually helps ward off your cold and flu and helps to increase the activity of those natural killer cells. So, the more we can have you know, your garlic and onion. I'll just give you a tip here because this is one that people like, oh, garlic and onion, awesome, but it's going to make my breath stink. <laughs> There's a simple trick to help, um, you know, combat the odor of these foods because they are so healthy, so it's good to have them in your diet. But if you actually consume a food that's really high in chlorophyll, so that's the green pigment that we see in lots of different um, veggies and things, particularly green leafy veggies, different herbs, my all-time favorite is mint or parsley. So if you have a lot of garlic and onion, particularly if it's been raw and you want to still be socially accessible, <laughs> you can, you know, chomp on a fair bit of, uh, like you don't even need all that much really, just a few tablespoons of some parsley or um, mint or something like that that's quite tasty and that'll actually deodorise your breath um, to the garlic and onion that you've just consumed. So, you know,
0: it's yeah, <laughs> a be helpful Renee, very, very quickly, somebody just texted through that for the last 30 years, they finished their hot shower with cold water, and they see that as being a great way of uh, um, holding off the flu. I was going to ask you, yes or no, and you were saying yes.
2: Beautiful. It's fantastic. So that quick, short burst of cold really helps to increase the white blood cell activity and production. So that's a fantastic thing to do. And it closes off those pores after your hot shower so that you're less likely to actually lose the heat that you've just generated in that shower. So it's great for avoiding chills and things like that. So as long as you do the quick burst of cold, towel dry off, get dressed nice and warm. That's a strategy of mine I use daily as well. So thank you for posting in. That's, That's awesome.
0: Fantastic, Renee Livingston. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Breakfast Show. We're going to move on.
2: Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.